Anyhow, last week, uh, as I uh, closed out my sermon, we, we were focusing on the book of Mark. That's where we're landing right now. We're going to be there for quite a long time. Um, and as I closed it out, one of our guys came up to me and they said, well, that sermon was only over one verse. How long are we going to be in the book of Mark? And uh, I think I also mentioned that we're going to be in it for months and months. And I've seen the, the look of fear come across some of your faces. So... Um, I'm just going to explain a little bit about why we do this, why we would plant ourselves in a book. And while I do that, the ushers have some Bibles. Um, If you don't have one with you, we'd love for you to have that in your hands. We'd love for you to be looking at God's Word as as you're hearing it as well. So as I've been looking at the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, I have uh, seen that there's probably about 50 plus sermons in there. And, And if you want to count that up, how many weeks are in the year? 52, and we're probably going to be taking some breaks and focus on some other things. So just plan that we're going to be in cozy in Mark for about a year and a half, okay? So probably by next Christmas, we'll be closing out the book of Mark, and, uh, which is awesome. We love that. Uh, I got some friends from some other churches, and they spent seven years in a book of the Bible, and that's, that's awesome as well. There's so much in there for us to know. As we walk slowly, it's, it's, like taking a, it's not like taking a speedboat across a lake. It's like going across a lake with a glass bottom and looking at every detail, looking at the depths and what God has for us. So the reason that we preach through whole books, verse by verse, rather than just picking and choosing chunks of Scripture at our own choice is because we really believe the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, and He wrote it from the beginning to the end. Now, an example of this... Uh, my, I was listening to some music the other day. We went to a concert, one of, our, one of my favorite bands from, from my uh, teenage years. And so I put on the Greatest Hits album on Spotify, and I got in trouble by my oldest son. He said, you shouldn't be playing the greatest hits. You should be listening to albums from beginning to end. The, the author of that music meant for it to be listened from, you know, as a composition, right? And so it's the same with, uh, with books, with literature, and it's also the same with God's Word, understanding it from beginning to close uh, as a book. And we trust the Holy Spirit has done that for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't sidestep and, and focus on certain issues. We will do that over the next year, take a chunk here to focus on something and another chunk somewhere else to focus. But for the most part, we're going to have a steady diet of the book of Mark for the next year and a half, verse by verse, and we see that as the Holy Spirit intended. And so with that, we're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 8. So we got seven verses today, a lot more than last week. Uh, We kind of talked about an overview last week as well, but seven verses, lots, lots to be seen here. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. He has to reveal His Word to us. Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we come before you today asking for your help. We thank you, Lord, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from man's own interpretation or by man's will, but that you spoke through men as you carried them along by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that all Scripture is breathed out by you, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness for the purpose of making us complete and equipping us for every good work for your glory. So, Lord, we ask you today to illuminate your word to us. We know that your word says that your truth is spiritually discerned, so would your spirit be at work in us this morning revealing the truth? 
Speak to us, Lord, through your word. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So Mark, the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. I'm just going to start reading from the first verse and then go right into the verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we do have seven verses here before us today. Last week we talked a little bit, a bit of overview of the Gospel of Mark. We talked about his authorship that he was, in fact, John Mark, right? He was, he was not a disciple, he was not an apostle, but he was a disciple of the apostle Peter. And so very much so, this gospel of Mark can also be considered the gospel of Peter, as, as John Mark would have wrote down the testimony and the preaching of Peter and his recollection of his time with Jesus. And the main point of last week's sermon is that The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about proclaiming that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in that, he calls you, by his own words, Jesus calls you to follow him as he called his disciples. And we learn this as the most urgent, most precious, most beautiful news that we could ever receive. This is, your whole life needs to bank on this news. And inside of that, we saw three critical proofs that would beckon us to follow Jesus immediately. We had the proof of his proclamation, that is, the gospel, the proof of his person, that is, his name, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and the proof of his power as the Son of God. Now, this week, as we get to look at these next verses, verses 2 to 8, we're going to see that the beginning of the good news that Mark is revealing in verse 1 is directly related to all of God's Word. And especially today, he's going to show us that it's related to the Old Testament prophecies, the whole counsel of God's Word. So in fact, what we're going to see today, we're going to see that foretold promises point to a forerunner's message, which points to a foremost Savior. That's where we're going today. And Mark is is showing us this because he is about to appear and it's about to get real. Jesus is coming. We're on the edge of him showing up. That's next Sunday. It's about to get real. And so let's start with these first two verses where we're going to see that the foretold promises affirm our hope in salvation. The foretold promises affirm our hope in salvation. Verse 2, as it is written... In Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So the first thing we're going to see here is that in looking forward, Mark looks back. In fact, he's looking back at the whole counsel of God's word. And he writes this, he says, as it is written. In our common church lingo today, that would be the Bible says, right? As it is written, the Bible says, and this is really important. Before we get into it, I just want to say on a side note here that we really need to be careful with some new voices out there that are preaching that we should stop saying the Bible says, or some people that are saying that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New. We just want to believe in Jesus' words. That's not the truth. That is misleading. We need the whole counsel of God's word. If we don't, it undermines the sovereignty of God over all of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit wrote this book as a complete unit for you. As we look at Scripture, we see over and over and over again, the prophets, the disciples, the apostles, they secure and they found all of their teaching in what God has written. They will say that as it is written or in the Scriptures or the old King James, thus saith the Lord, right? It's the only reason that we can know anything about Jesus is because the Bible says so. Just like our old Sunday school song, if you grew up in the church, right? What was that song we used to sing? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? That's the truth. That's the only reason we know Jesus Christ is because the Bible tells us so. And so we see Mark here, John Mark, he's sound in the theology of Peter. He says it is written. He doesn't say I think. He doesn't say uh, I, this is my interpretation. He's, he doesn't say, I've heard it said. He doesn't say, this is my thoughts. He says, it is written. And I love that. Because it reminds us that God is not only the author of the book of Mark, but of the whole Bible. The Old Testament, the New Testament. It is the whole counsel of God. And Mark then gives us two very clear examples of this anticipation in the Old Testament for the revelation of salvation. And he's going to show us two examples that reveal us about a coming man. He says, as it is written in Isaiah, behold, look, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So if you know your Old Testament well, the first thing you're going to notice is that this is not just Isaiah's words. So it's being regarded as Isaiah, but it's not just his words. It's rather a combination of two prophecies from two prophets. So this is both from Isaiah and Malachi. But because Isaiah was the more prominent prophet, he was the only one that was named. That's kind of a common thing they would have done. So it is Isaiah and it is Malachi, but starting with Malachi... Uh, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. This is almost identical to Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then he completes the quotation with, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, which you can see very clearly. It's a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3. 
We read this in our pre-scripture reading today. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, both of these prophecies were written at a time of great anticipation for the coming Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. But they both point to some new news, some new revelation, that before the Savior comes, there would be a messenger. There would be one coming before them. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3.16 briefly, where we saw the first promise that God gave to his people that he is going to send a Savior. And as you continue through the Old Testament, you see that this, this plan of salvation becomes more and more clear. We see this through, through Noah and through Abraham and Isaiah, or sorry, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David. We knew that this Savior would then become a shepherd and he would be a king. He, he would also, in Isaiah, be a suffering servant. And as God's word and, and history progressed throughout the Old Testament, the plan was becoming more and more evident. It's like the unfolding of a blanket. And say there's an image on that blanket. You unfold it and it becomes clearer and clearer. You can see it. And so this is the same with Isaiah and Malachi here. This, this clearer truth is being revealed by their prophecy that there was a coming messenger and he would come before Jesus and he would be a herald, like a herald going before royalty, one, one who would come before the Messiah, one who would prepare the way for Jesus. Mark and, and the other three gospel writers all proclaim that, that this messenger was none other than John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And so we're going to learn much more about him in this next section today. But before we do that, we need to stop and we need to ponder at the amazement of this unveiling plan of God. That it was written, that it was kept that there was a promise, that there was hope of salvation. In our example today, we see this John the Baptist being prophesied about by two different prophets who were separated by 250 years. Uh, Isaiah prophesied 700 years before John was born, and Malachi prophesied 450 years before he was born. This would have brought so much hope and anticipation for God's people in those times as they were in the wilderness, and it should bring us great hope today as well. When we look back and we see what God was doing, it should give us great hope. When we see prophecy clearly being shown in the Bible as fulfilled in a person, it shows us God's eternal plan of redemption, that this is no accident. This has been planned from the very beginning. Looking at the scriptures and seeing all the prophecies, just looking at Jesus, seeing that he fills over 300 prophecies himself, through allusions and all kinds of rituals and sacrifices, pointing to Jesus Christ, all fulfilled perfectly in him, pointing the old covenant people to a coming salvation. And then we see with the arrival of this John that it's about to get real. It is here. It's on the doorsteps Friends, the news of John the Baptist and the gospel of Jesus Christ is in fact old news. It's good news, but it's old news. It's all between the pages of Scripture. It's been God's plan. Even before the foundation of time, 
Ephesians tells us that God has been planning this before he created the universe to save his people and to save you. It's amazing. And so we today, we can glean some hope from this. Because we, though though we are found in Christ, we can still have days, still have seasons of hopelessness. Seasons of despair. Seasons lacking joy. Struggling. But when we look at the scriptures and we see what God has done, we can see that we can have hope. So are you struggling with hope today? Are you struggling with your faith? Are you struggling to believe? Look at the words of God. They're full of promise and hope. The testimony of God's faithful plan from the very beginning should affirm our faith It should give us an unending hope in our sovereign God who loves you enough to keep on showing you that he had a plan. Just think about how he wrote this Bible. Forty different authors over 1,600 years, and yet it is so unified. It is so gloriously perfect in every way, teaching from beginning to end that there was a plan that there is salvation. And it is in one person and one person alone, Jesus Christ. And so if you're struggling with hope, I say go to the Bible, go to the Old Testament, look at the prophecies, see how they are fulfilled, and grab onto that hope. And so that's our first point. The foretold promises affirm our hope in salvation. And so today we're going to be looking at what John, this messenger that was prophesied, the one who is the voice crying in the wilderness, we're going to look at what he had to say. We're going to look at what his practice was, what God wanted to share to the world through him, how he was preparing the way of the Lord. We're going to see him on display, which is going to point us to Jesus. And so the next point is this, from verses 4 to 6, is that the forerunner's message shows our need of repentance. The forerunner's message shows our need of repentance. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So beginning in verse 4, as, as Mark often does, he brings John into this very abruptly, very immediately. He's, he just appears. No story of his life, no mention, as the other Gospels do, that he was the cousin of Jesus. No mention that he, was, he first met Jesus when he was in his mother's womb, and Jesus was in his mother's womb. And John, as a, as a baby inside, leapt for joy that his Messiah was there. He didn't mention that. It's good to think about. Mark is all about snapshots. He gets to the point. He jumps right in and, and says that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. He appeared. Now, last week we had, uh, we had the awesome privilege of, of having a service where two of our, our people, a couple young ladies in our, in our church, got baptized. It was the first time we got to celebrate that as a church. Now, what John was doing would have been very different for his time. 
When we think about baptism today in the church, it's very normal for us, right? This should be a very normal practice as people are baptized. But in, that, in those times, we see that this was, would have been very unique. In the, in the book of Acts, as, as the church started, we've seen that people were being baptized. But before Jesus came and lived and died, this was not a common practice. The kind of Baptist done by John was entirely new. Although there was some different types of cleansing rituals in Jewish history, a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins would have been unique. It would have been shocking. Just think about these thousands of people coming from the city, coming out to the wilderness to come and see this man wearing a camel's hair coat and, and a belt around his waist, and they were getting dunked in water. They were confessing their sins and being plunged in the River Jordan. I think we have a map there too, Jason, don't we? Just to give you a little reference of where this takes place. So this would have been just south by about 30, 30 kilometers or so, south of the Galilee, along the River Jordan. That's the river there. People from Judea and Samaria were coming to Galilee to be baptized by John. The strange man. Let's have a look at that. John is described here as a man who lives in the wilderness. This is an area, like I said, just south of Galilee, outside the busyness of the cities. Basically, John would have been a backwoods kind of a guy. He would have looked very different than everyone else. Not your average Joe, or should I say not your average John. Verse 6 says that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist which even for back then wasn't in fashion, right? That's, that's not what they were wearing in the cities. Uh, it wasn't, the, it wasn't uh, the cutting-edge style on the runways of Jerusalem. He would have stood out like a sore thumb. And in many ways, in many respects, those coming from the city to the wilderness would have thought, this man is crazy. He looks crazy. He's the kind of guy that if you were walking down a street and he was coming at you, you might have went to the other side of the street. Mark also describes that he had a strange diet as well. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, wild honey sounds great to me. Love honey, but locusts. When's the last time anybody had a locust sandwich or a locust smoothie? Yeah, I haven't either. So this guy, he's eating this crazy food. He's one strange dude. Even for back then, he, he would have been an outsider. He would have been looking like a recluse. But in all this strangeness, to us and even to them, there would have been such significance in his appearance. In his standing out, he was standing out. He has this camel hair outfit. And what's significant about that is that this type of clothing was seen with the Old Testament prophets. In fact, the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8 is described as a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. Not that Elijah himself was just a really hairy beast, right? He, he wore hairy animal skins. And so this, this points us to John as a prophet and, and affirming his prophetic nature in what he looked like, fulfilling him as a prophet and the forerunner, the messenger of Jesus Christ. And then we see this diet of locusts, which seems strange to us. The honey seems great, uh, which would have been available. Uh, 
but these locusts, they weren't so strange way back in the prophet's day. The Mosaic law permitted the Israelites to eat locusts in Leviticus 11, 21 to 22. It says, Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat of those and have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. And so this would have been allowable food for the early Israelites. One commentator says, locusts provided a good source of protein and could be prepared in a variety of ways. Once the wings and legs were removed, the the body could be roasted, boiled, dried, and even ground up and baked into a bread. Okay, so I asked Sue today to, uh, you know, yesterday to to bring us a locust pie so that we could apply this to our life here, but uh, she refused to do that. But this would have been Wilderness food. This was available in the wilderness, and John was in the wilderness. In fact, locusts are still eaten today. I've seen them out there being eaten. I've seen them in a little package. I think you can get them at some of these candy stores out there. And so we have this man, this crazy-looking man eating this food, living off the land with honey breath and locust breath. But what's beautiful about this is people were not running away from him. People were flocking to him. Instead of of being running, running away like you and I'd be tempted. They were being drawn to him. They were going to him in the wilderness. Verse 5 says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were attracted to him. He looked like a prophet. He acted like a prophet. His message was prophetic. And the people of Isaiah or the people of Israel this time, they hadn't heard a prophet in over 400 years. It was a time of darkness. God was not speaking through prophets. And so they came in droves. They came from everywhere. They were hearing this message of baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And instead of rejecting the message, they were responding to the message, and they were responding to John's call to be baptized. And they were baptized. Here's some water. Here's the river. He was baptizing them. They knew that they needed to change. They knew that their sinful ways were getting between them and the Lord. And so we see this. We see confession. We see repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was the message that John was sharing. And that is still our message today. Repentance. Confession. Forgiveness of sins. Our message is all about this. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us have sinned. We all need to repent, which means to turn away from our sin. It really means we were walking in the direction of sin, but God calls us to turn from that sin and walk in the other direction towards him. We need to turn from our old life, turn from our wicked ways, turn from our even our hatred for God, and turn to believe in Him, follow Him, love Him. And with that comes this glorious reality that although our sins are against a holy God and that they deserve eternal punishment, He saves us by His grace. 
He saves us by his love. We can have total and everlasting forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our message today. And and John's message was pointing to that, even though it wasn't quite there yet. His message, like I said, would have been radical. It would have directed, directly confronted a common belief of the Jews that their salvation would somehow come through their heritage or their rituals. A works righteousness kind of religion. That it's about what I can do. It's about my good works. But that's not the gospel. Even though Jesus was not yet on the scene, John's message pointed to something greater. It personalized and prepared the way of true faith that can only come through repentance and faith. And so repentance and faith is central for us here this morning. This is central to the gospel. This is the forerunner's message as well. And it shows us our need of repentance You know, becoming a Christian is not merely about adding Jesus to your life. You know, I have a great life. You know, I got a family and I've got all these great things. I've got a good job. I love to go to the mountains and hang out. But, you know, salvation is not just about adding Jesus to that. It's about discovering, in fact, that, that you are a sinner in need of repentance, turning from your sin. And then if we don't preach repentance, we don't believe in repentance, we don't get the whole news. In fact, when you look at Jesus' first words here in the Gospel of Mark, what does he say? Verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. We also see this later when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to go and do ministry in Mark 6, verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And so it is central. It is central. Then it is central. Now, our sin, just like our parents' sin, both Adam and Eve, has separated us from our God. There is a huge chasm between us and him. And that chasm can only be bridged in the gospel of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we need to repent, turn to Christ. Have faith in what he did for you on the cross. Have faith for what he did for you in that tomb as you rose from the grave. You can have life in him. That's the message for all of us, for adults, for for children, for our teenagers. You don't know when your day is up. I remember being a teenager and and looking to the future and and thinking, okay, that's something I want for then, but right now I just want to have fun. I want to taste the world. By God's grace, he changed me later, but I was playing with time. I was gambling With my life. You don't know when your day is up. You don't know if today is the day that you are to die. And so we need to turn, trust in Jesus Christ alone. Cry out to Him, confess your sins, see your need of repentance, ask for the Lord's total forgiveness, and He will save you. 
Romans 10, 9 to 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the, one, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see confession at the center of this as well. So if you have not done that, today is the day of salvation. And if you have done that, if you are a Christian, repentance doesn't stop at the door. Christians live a life of repentance and confession and seeking the forgiveness for your sin. And so we see this forerunner's message pointing us towards repentance, that it is central. It is our life as Christians, constantly turning from sin. And so as clear as this message of repentance is, I love how this last section shows us that repentance is not something that we can do in our own strength. It's not something that we can whip up on our own. We don't have the power to repent on our own. We need something more. And so verses 7 to 8 is going to show us that the foremost Savior provides our supernatural regeneration. The foremost Savior provides our supernatural regeneration. That word regeneration sounds a little heady, but it's a word in the Bible, and so we need to know it. We need to, to, to live it. Verse 7, and he preaches. This is John preaching. This is his message saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As John was the last prophet, he's, he was also referred to by Christ as the greatest prophet. And as much as these people were coming in droves to hear this message and to be baptized by him, they would have been tempted to think that he was the promised Savior. Maybe he would save them from their sin. But he knowing the truth, knowing his role, understanding who he was as the forerunner, the messenger, the one who was crying in the wilderness, the one called to prepare the way of the Lord, he points listeners to the one who is greater, the one who is mightier than he. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. He's pointing them to the one who is greater, the long-awaited Messiah that's been promised throughout all of Scripture. He's, he's showing them that things are about to get real. It's coming. It's here. If they think that he's great, they haven't seen anything yet. He's saying that I'm nothing in comparison to him. I'm just a prophet. I'm just his slave. I'm here to serve him, and I'm here to point you to him. He is the greatest. He's saying I am the forerunner, but he is the foremost He's the one we've been waiting for forever. He's coming. He's showing them that, that they need to see that their whole purpose and his purpose is to magnify the one who is coming, the real one, the one with the greater baptism, the one with the greater message, the message that is his body, that is his name. John says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so as awesome as that scene 
would have been with thousands of people coming and repenting and confessing their sin and being baptized by John, John points them to something greater. And what is greater is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is being born again. The baptism of the Holy Spirit when you are saved, when you are regenerated, when, you're, when your heart is made new. It is supernatural transformation. It takes place when God saves a sinner, when he takes out that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel 36. It's what Titus later says in the New Testament. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. You see, friends, as much as we would desire to turn from our sin ourselves, it is impossible apart from the work of God first. He has to regenerate your heart, He has to make you alive, He has to cause you to be born again. This is why the, the Apostle John said in John 3, verses 6 to 8, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. This is supernatural, God-led transformation. This has to happen first, and it is a mystery. And I love this quote by Thomas Watson. He says, The devil would have Christ prove himself to be God by turning stones into bread. But the Holy Ghost shows his Godhead by turning stones into flesh. A stony heart cannot believe. A fleshly heart believes. It has to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Friends, salvation is the Lord's work. The only way that you can truly believe, the only way that you can truly repent is by the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit, God himself. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one who came later at Pentecost and he filled and baptized his church. Every time God saves a person, he baptizes them into him. We're not talking about the ritual of baptism. That's a picture of what's already done in your heart. When you are baptized, when you are saved, when you are regenerated, once for all, God comes to reside in you. He fills you with his spirit. He dwells within you. And now you are enabled to respond in repentance and faith and walk in newness of life with him. That's the only way it happens. You cannot be saved apart from the work of the Lord first. You cannot confess and repent and be forgiven apart from being first regenerated. This has been the ultimate plan since day one, that a Savior would come, that he would live and he would die, that he would rise from the grave, that he would ascend into heaven, and that he would give us his supernatural presence in the Holy Spirit in us. This has been the plan, enabling us to follow him, giving us strength, Trying to follow Jesus apart from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is trying to fly a plane with no wings, no engine, no fuel. 
You kind of look like a plane, but you're going nowhere. It's useless. And so I pray today that you see the hand of God in this, this amazing and sovereign plan from eternity past, foretold by the prophets, foretold by John, fulfilled in John, but to come perfectly in Jesus Christ, the one who gives us the Spirit. And so we see that these foretold promises led to a forerunner's message, which leads to a foremost Savior. That gives us hope in redemption. It shows us our need of repentance, which can only happen through supernatural regeneration. This is what we see God doing in this text, showing us John, showing us the fulfillment, showing us the message that we need to repent and follow him and look with anticipation to Jesus Christ. So as this text closes, we see, well, who is this that's coming? We know. We stand on this side of Scripture. We're looking back. We see it clearly. We have more revelation today. We know him perfectly. We see it in Scripture. They didn't even know his name. We know his name. We know who he is. We, we know the whole story in the, in the pages of Scripture. And so we have hope and redemption. We see repentance and we see regeneration. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that in this short section of Scripture, we see you at work. Your hands are all over this. Your sovereign will, your sovereign plan from day one, actually before day one, before you created the universe and created us, you had a plan to save us. And the plan was perfect, it was promised, and it was fulfilled perfectly. We thank you for John, the baptizer. We thank you that you sent him as a forerunner, not only for the people of Israel at that time, but for us. To look at his message, to look what he was teaching, to see what he was practicing, to show us that we need to repent and follow you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your good news. And we look forward to hearing more about the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed through Mark as we walk with Jesus through the pages of Mark. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.